Okay, let's pray, and we'll get into God's Word this morning. We're in Psalm 107. I've been stuck here in, in my heart for a little while, and uh, so let's go there. Father, we just thank you uh, for your Word today. We ask, Lord, your blessing upon it as we uh, consider these things. I pray, Father, that we would be strengthened, that we would be encouraged, that Christ would be magnified, that our hearts, Jesus, would be drawn and pointed to you. And I just pray for those watching us online this morning, Lord, that you bless them. I pray for those that are here for the very first time, God, that your spirit would just meet them in a sweet way. And uh, Lord, for the dads, again, uh, we thank you for them, Lord. We thank you that uh, we have so many godly men in our church and fathers who want to be good dads and want to honor you. And uh, we pray your blessing over them today, Lord. We thank you for the strength that they provide to their homes and their families. We thank you for the provision they bring into their households. We thank you, Father, for the sense of security that they bring to their wives and their children. And we bless them today, Lord, and I pray, God, that you'd make uh, the men of our church mighty men, godly men for you, Lord, for your glory, for your kingdom, and that Christ would shine through them. So, Lord, I, I just thank you for the guys and pray a special blessing upon them. And now, Lord, uh, open our hearts to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Psalm 107, great psalm. I don't know. I don't know how I say this, but it's like, it feels like it's one of my favorites. I read recently someone said this. They said, well, what's your favorite scripture? And he said, it's the last one that I read most recently. I kind of feel like that with the Bible, don't you? It's like, okay, well, what's your favorite book? Well, we're in Colossians right now, so I think it might be Colossians. But uh, this is one of, a, one of the great psalms, and uh, we're not told who the writer of this psalm is. It, it begins with... I, it begins with this encouragement to, to give thanks to the Lord because the Lord is good and because his steadfast love endures forever. And so this psalm starts that way and it closes with that same idea and sandwiched in between is all of these thoughts about the Lord, about how wise people will consider his steadfast love and his goodness and they'll call upon him when they're in different situations. And so... Uh, this psalm tells the stories of people and, and life situations that they found themselves in, each, each in a place of need, each in a place where they're desperate for the deliverance of God, for God to come through and, and to help them in the midst of their circumstances because they can't control what's going on around them or what they're in the middle of. And so in each one of these situations, the psalmist just describes how when they cry out to the Lord, how when you and I cry out to the Lord, the Lord delivers us. So let's take a peek at it here. Verse one, it says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Now, in, in your Bible there, you'll see this. Lots of you know this. Maybe you don't know this, but capitalized in that psalm is the name for the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. And when the Bible does that, it's telling us that a specific name is being used for God. What's that name, you guys? What is it? Yahweh. Yahweh that's right. It's the name Yahweh. And what we find out from the psalmist here is that Yahweh does not force worship in this sense that it's groans and cries to him against human will. 
He is worshipped with thanksgiving, the psalmist says, because he is a God who is good, eternally good. His steadfast love endures forever. He's good in the nature of his character. He's good in the very nature of his essence. He's proven by all of his acts in comparison to him. When the Bible speaks of his goodness, there's no one else that's on the playing field with him. He is infinitely good. And what's amazing is that the Lord invites us to participate with him in his goodness. Think about the goodness of the Lord. It's not short term. It's not temporary. Does not come and go. His goodness is not here today and gone tomorrow. Yahweh's goodness is an attribute of his steadfast love that endures forever. His goodness is eternal. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, meaning this, his love has no beginning and it has no end. And so the psalmist says this, let the redeemed of the Lord say these things, those whom he has redeemed from trouble. And so when you think about it, you know, whatever others want to say about the Lord, maybe they hate the Lord. Maybe they have disdain for the Lord or a lack of interest in the Lord. The redeemed of the Lord are called to with overflowing reason, declare the steadfast goodness and love of the Lord and give him thanksgiving because he has redeemed us by his goodness. And we know this, that the ransom price that was paid for our redemption was massive. It was tremendous. So we give thanks to the Lord. We don't just feel thanksgiving, church. We're not just to feel it, we're to verbalize it. We are to say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Jesus redeemed me from my trouble. Amen? Is that true for you? Has Jesus redeemed you from your trouble? You know, we sing that song sometimes in our church. Um, I was lost in darkest night. I thought I knew the way. And Jesus redeemed me. Snatched up by his love. Snatched up by his power that was greater Then our sin, we were oppressed and Yahweh liberated us. He redeemed us from trouble, a divine redemption. And that is the claim that no one else can claim to have redeemed us. No one else has done it. Jesus alone, Yahweh alone. He's completely unaided in that work of redemption in our lives. He came, he rescued. The Bible tells us heaven came down, his holiness was uncompromised, and we should continually thank him. Uh, Once we were slaves, now we've been set free. And so gratitude should flow from our heart to the one who rescued us. And so the psalmist says this, Yahweh's rescued us from all sorts of different places. Some of us were living without direction. Some were just wandering Some were lost, some were hungry, some were thirsty. And the psalmist presents these pictures of people that have been redeemed. I love it. The first picture is of someone who's lost their way. Look at verse four. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul 
and the hungry soul he fills with good things. So the psalmist speaks about wandering in the desert. You know, when I think about the desert, I, I always think this, I'm like, to me, there's no worse place to be lost than in a desert, to be wandering than in a desert. There's no road, there's no track, there's no path to follow, there's no shade, there's no water, there's no food. You're exposed to all of the heat of all of the sun, all around you is burning sand. One of the movies I love, I, I don't talk about movies very often because I'm not really a movie guy, but one that I love uh, was with Ed Harris, The Way Back. Have you ever seen that? He escapes the gulag, the prison and the gulag, and he's with a group of people and they travel over two, it's based on a true story, they travel over 2,000 kilometers, I think it is, on foot. And one of the areas they have to cross in their escape is the Mongolia Desert. And it's so brutal. The redeemed of the Lord are gathered here, we read, from the north and the south and the east and the west. But the one wandering in the desert can't find a city. They have no one to journey with them, no comfort, no peace, no water, no food. The desert is a lonely, lonely wasteland where individuals just have misery. That's what I think of. No one to help and they can't help themselves. But the psalmist said they did this. In the midst of that place, they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. Not till their soul fainted did they finally come to their senses. Why don't I call on the Lord? They came to the end of themselves and they finally called on the name of Yahweh and they prayed. And in that time of need, when they called on the Lord, you know, it wasn't until they were starving and thirsty, parched with thirst, hunger brought them to their knees, thirst brought them to the fountain of life, and the Lord was ready to save. And the cry was probably feeble. Have you ever had a feeble cry before the Lord? With parched mouth and chapped lips? That's when the Lord comes. When we come to the end of ourselves and we remember Him. And the psalmist says this, He led them by a straight way until they reached a city to dwell in. I like that, a straight way. He led them on a path. There are many wrong ways. We know this. There's only one right way. Jesus said to Thomas, or Thomas, sorry, asked Jesus, how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so here the psalmist paints this picture of a, a desert, a, a maze of, it's pathless, but the Lord leads us, he says, by a straight way when we call to him. The, the wanderer was hungry. We know this. Jesus is the bread of life. The wanderer was thirsty. Jesus said, I am the source of living water. He offers living water that wells up to eternal life. And so he led them not from one desert into another, but from one desert, from the desert into a city, a place where there's a home, a place where you can lay your head, where you can rest, where you can find security and comfort and peace to a home. I always think home is refreshing. Love to go home. And so the psalmist says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and his wondrous works to the children of man for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Look, let me remind you church, when we have lost our way, the solution is call on the Lord. Only Jesus can satisfy the longing soul. And for that, we are to give him thanks. 
Then the psalmist goes on and describes someone else. It's someone who's lost their freedom. Look at verse 10. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. So the psalmist speaks of this person who's like shackled. They've gotten to a place of, of prison. And the Lord, the psalmist says this, that this is the result of their rebellion against the word of the Lord. They, they turned against the word of the Lord and it was like they were imprisoned. A cell of darkness. I think about this, you know, this, this dark cell that's described here, it's kind of, to me, has this, this fear of shadowy death over it, this fear of execution, the fear of blackest night. The thought of such a place is suffocating that you read about. It's like, it might as well be like a, a tomb, a grave, a coffin, where the dread of death strangles light and life. Well, let me ask you, do you remember the bonds of a life without Jesus? Bondage was the result of not being loyal to the Lord. And here the psalmist reminds us, God's word is not to be considered an unimportant thing that we ignore. This is a picture of those who rebel against the word of the Lord. Those who think that they know better to leave the ways of the Lord and to walk by their own, choosing not to live by his authority or by his word, but by the authority of their own Will So the psalmist says, he bows their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help them. None to help. No one to pity. Makes me think of the Israelites in slavery in the land of Egypt, working in those mud pits, making bricks, laboring with each step to mix the mud and the straw and making mortar and, and bricks and all that they were uh, doing no one to help them. The, the labor was hard and it was endless and their situation was desperate. Sin and rebellion does the same thing in our lives. And until we call out to the Lord, it's like we're in this prison cell. But the psalmist says, in their trouble, in this situation, they called to the Lord and he delivered them from their distress. The Israelites had no one to help. So they looked up, they called on the Lord. There was no cry till their heart, there was no cry till their hearts were brought down and all of their hope was dead. And then they came to their senses and they looked to the Lord. And out of helplessness and, and misery, they cried to the Lord. That's, that's when I pray the best. I don't know about you. When I've reached the point of coming to the end of myself, when I feel helpless, that's when we pray best. And there God meets us. And he saves those lost and wandering in the openness of the desert. And he frees those in the confines of a, a prison, bolts and bars of iron, darkness and death does not shut the Lord out or scare him away. In fact, it says this, he brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. 
That's what Jesus did for us. He freed us. He freed us from slavery to sin, freed us from iron shackles of sin, from the suffocation of confined space. His word tells us in many places that he brings us out into broad open spaces. He sets us free by his power, never to be chained again. I love the picture of dungeon doors flying open and chains snapping. This is what Isaiah said the Messiah would do. This was the ministry that Jesus had. He sets captives free. He came and announced that. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim liberty to captives and to open the prison doors for those who are bound, to lead them into light from darkness, redeemed, as we saw in the first bit of Colossians last week, redeemed from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his glorious light. And so the psalmist says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and he cuts into the bars of iron. I love that because Jesus said this, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Iron bars of hell, the iron bars of hell are no match for King Jesus. Remember Samson? Under the power of the Spirit, he carried off the gates from the city Gaza, placed them on the hill at Hebron. He, he pulled post and pillar out of the ground by the power of the Spirit. He set the gates on his shoulders and he carried them off, marched them off to the brow of the hill. Well, what we read here is this, is that hell's bronze gate has been carried off by the Lord. Thank the Lord for his steadfast love. For those who have lost their freedom, Jesus has a plan for your prison break. Call on him. Verse 17 says this, Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, they suffered affliction. They loathed food of any kind. They drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. The psalmist alludes to this, that many times uh, sickness is directly the result of human foolishness. People indulge themselves in the pursuit of sin and they suffer physically for their folly. And sin is at the bottom of all human sorrow. Sin is the substructure of, of all sorrow, but some sorrows are the immediate results of wickedness and foolishness and there can be a cost attached to it, the psalmist says, where you'll lose your health. He speaks of the appetite leaving the body, the loathing of food, the stomach turning against the body. It reminds me of uh, the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a preacher in England in the last century, one of the great voices of the church in the last century. And before he became a preacher, he was training to be a medical doctor. And if my memory serves me correctly, actually, he served under the queen's doctor. He was he was going places in the medical community. And so 
an understudy of the queen's physician, and during his medical training, he came to the conclusion that he believed that 70% of the ills that he was caring for were rooted not in physical problems, but in spiritual problems in people's lives. And in that realization, he sensed God's call. He could treat the problem or he could get to the root of the problem, which was a spiritual solution in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he made a decision not to be a physician of the body, but a physician of the soul, spending his life pointing men and women towards the Lord Jesus Christ to get at the root of sin's disease. And I think about that, I think, yeah, you know, we live in this culture where we're overrun with anxiety, aren't we? All sorts of issues. We have a diagnosis for everything in our culture. For all our sickly and bad behaviors, we say, take a pill. Prescribe for everything. Our culture is sick in its heart, diseased in its soul. And I would bet Lloyd Joint's conclusion of 70% of physical problems being rooted in spiritual issues translates easily into our generation. And I might say it could be a higher percentage. With a soul that is afflicted by sin's disease, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the cure. The treatment is the cross. You need a transfusion of the blood of Jesus. The physical need is great, and the solution is the great physician. The psalmist says this, that in their troubles, they cried to the Lord, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. It reminds me of that, as I read that, of the centurion soldier in Capernaum who came to Jesus and he appealed to Jesus on the, uh, for his suffering servant. And Jesus said, I will come to your house and I will heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done as you believed. And his servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus sent forth his word and he healed him. I love this picture and connecting these dots in the scripture to the words of the psalmist. Because the psalmist says, the Lord Yahweh sent forth his word and healed And we should connect these dots. Jesus is Yahweh. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. You know, the great physician deserves his pay, and that's gratitude. It's songs of joy and praise to him for what he's done. So in this Psalm, you see that God can rescue your soul when you lose your way. He can liberate us when we lose our freedom. He can heal us when we lose our health. And next, Yahweh, uh, the psalmist speaks of Yahweh restoring us when we lose hope and courage. He speaks of the one who lost courage. Check it out, verse 23. Someone down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters, And they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and he raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Then 
They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. We have the, the blessing of the Lord by living by the ocean. Don't you love it here? And there's something adventurous about the ocean. There's something mysterious about traveling on the seas. And I, I think about in ancient days, if you're going to navigate the ocean in the dark, I mean, you were reduced to trying to read the stars. And I don't think pleasure crafting existed in the same way that it does in our day and age. The sea was not and is not, we know this, something that man controls. When you go out onto the sea, you place your life in the hands of nature. You know, not that I'm giving a personification to nature. We just, just say that because it's a way to describe it. Uh, you know, anyone who spent any time on the ocean will have story, stories of harrowing adventure. I bet we could go around the room this morning and tell all sorts of, sorts of stories about adventure on the ocean, or ocean. The mariner at times seemingly stares death in the face or sees amazing things. I remember when we were on one of our early men's kayak trips and we were in Seashell Inlet and we were paddling and we saw this strange sight in the water. So we began to make our way over to it and it looked like a man doing a, a breaststroke. And as we paddled up to uh, this man, what we thought was some sort of creature doing a breaststroke, we saw that it was a bald eagle swimming in the water. And we thought, well, this is weird. So we hung back and we followed this eagle till it got to the shore and it drug itself up out of the waters. And in its talons was a big salmon, too big for it to pull up out of the water. Or when we've been up to Port Hardy fishing a couple years ago, we were cruising through the fog early in the morning, about 4.30 in the morning, cutting across the, the strait, and uh, we couldn't see a thing. And so the, the captain of the boat was looking at the radar. He said, I want one man looking forward, one looking out to the right, one looking to the left, and we're just ripping through the full throttle, through the fog. And all of a sudden, right in front of us, a big gray whale comes up and scoops up all of these fish. And yeah, that captain was swearing. And he threw that boat into reverse as hard as he could. And it was like from me to the post, this big gray whale in front of us. Uh, the ocean is a crazy place where you can face all kinds of adventures. There's wonders in the ocean deep. The ocean is an adventurous place, but when God commands, he raises up the storm, the psalmist says. He lifts up the waves of the sea and all of it, the adventure side of it is lost and you just fear for your life. And life can be like that. Life itself can be like the ocean, adventurous and unpredictable. And sometimes life sends storms. Sometimes God sends storms. Sometimes the sea just out these windows right here this morning can be like it is today. And other days you look out here and it's white caps everywhere. And sometimes in life, the glassy surface of the sea is broken and the wind blows 
and the rain pelts like it did last night and the blue sky disappears into blackness and lightning cracks and thunder roars. Waves rise from the depths of the heaven and your courage and your hope disappear. Your soul melts because of the trouble in front of you, wearied and wet and beaten by the storm of life. It can happen spiritually. We have like this storm inside of you, a hurricane inside of you, and you come to your wit's end. I like that in verse 27. That's a biblical saying, another biblical saying, to come to your wit's end. But the psalmist says this, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. I think this, who's the psalmist speaking of? Is it not Jesus? I mean, is this not Jesus? Is this not he who stood in a boat with his disciples and said, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? He who stood in that boat and rebuked the wind and the waves, there was great calm. And immediately the gospels tell us that when he stilled the storm, the boat arrived at the other side of the sea, arrived at the destination. And they marveled. They said, what sort of man is this that the wind and the waves obey them? Jesus commanded the storm and he ordained the calm. The waves and the wind bowed in silence at his feet. I love this. He's Yahweh, the Lord Jesus. And a storm, we know this, can rage inside of you in your heart. And in your mind and in a moment, the Lord can send to that same heart and mind that's in the midst of confusion and distress, his peace. And it surpasses understanding. A heart fraught with anxiety. And in a moment, a peace that surpasses understanding. Uh, it takes the hurricane and there's calm. You can have outward troubles and inward fears, but if you call on the name of the Lord, he can send a word of peace and it can come in an instant. And your heart that was just like devoid of hope finds, finds rest and finds quiet, quiet waters and finds the, the haven of harbor and refuge. Jesus is a harbor for the storm-weary life. He's shelter. And so the psalmist says this, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. When Christ has led you through stormy seas to calm waters, there is an obligation, the psalmist says, to thank him, to praise him when God's people come together, to tell of his wondrous works, to give testimony and praise and thanksgiving in the congregation of his people. Look at verse 33. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into a thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. 
They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless ways. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The scripture says this, the psalmist says this, that this is wisdom. This is wisdom to consider God's steadfast love. And this is how the Lord works. When you lose your way, when you lose your freedom, when you lose your health, when you lose your courage, the Lord is worthy of your praise. The Lord is worthy of your trust. Call upon him and bring the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And so this psalm begins with the call to give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and his steadfast love. And it, and it ends with this call that wisdom considers this love. And in between, there's all these life situations that we can find ourselves in. And the Lord's steadfast love is revealed in the midst of every one of these pictures. They're great pictures of life. The desert, the prison, foolishness or sickness, loss of courage or hope on the stormy seas of life. And this psalm closes by saying, be wise and pay attention to these things and consider the Lord. And when we take time to consider it, what can we give to God? Well, it's Father's Day. <laughs> what do you give to the greatest father who has everything? What can I give him to improve the quality of his life? What do I have that meets his needs? Well, the psalmist says this, give thanks to God. Yeah, maybe we could say thanks is all we can give. It's all we can give or the least we can give, but we should give thanks to our Father in heaven this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Would you guys stand with me? Let's give thanks to the Lord. Father, this morning, on Father's Day, Lord, we just want to thank you. We want to honor you. You're a good, good father. You're faithful. Father, I want, to, I want to thank you on behalf of your people for the way that you led us when we were lost. You brought us home to your son, Jesus. Father, this morning, I want to thank you that when we were captive and chains to sin, Jesus set us free, broke the bonds. Father, this morning, we want to thank you that when we've been foolish or sick, you've touched us and you've led us to Jesus with a word. You transformed our lives. Father, this morning, we thank you for the times where we've lost hope and lost courage. And then you sent your word and you calmed the storm. You stilled the raging sea and you brought us into your desired haven. And so, Father, this morning, we, we just thank you. We praise you. In the congregation of your people, we acknowledge, Lord, your faithfulness, your eternal goodness, 
and your steadfast love. And we praise you today. Lord, I pray that on this day, this Father's Day, that our hearts would overflow with gratitude to you, Lord, for who you are and all you've done. May your blessing, Father, be upon your people in Jesus' name. Amen.